This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Happy holidays. This hour, we're primed for reminiscing during seasons like this. For people with dementia, reflecting on past events in life is actually a form of therapy, and you don't have to be a trained expert to help a loved one tap into the benefits. Also, we associate ghost stories with Halloween, but in Victorian England, supernatural tales were a Christmas thing. Then why Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is still the perfect holiday hit. It's coming up on this special holiday episode of Top of Mind. Good to have you with us. The holidays are filled with sights, sounds, and smells that trigger memories. For people suffering memory loss caused by dementia, the act of intentionally reminiscing about past holidays or other key events in life can improve that person's cognitive abilities and mood. Bob Woods has led much of the research into what's called reminiscence therapy. He's currently a retired professor of psychology at the Aging and Dementia Research Center at Bangor University in Wales, and he is with me now. Professor Woods, welcome. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. Hello. How is reminiscence therapy different from simply reminiscing? That's a good question. And reminiscing, of course, is something that many of us like to do, you know, particularly at holiday times when we get together with friends and family. It's really good to share uh, memories of, uh, of experiences that we've had. Um, it becomes a therapy, I guess, when it's used in, a, in, in order to try to help people with dementia to have a better quality of life, to have better relationships, to be able to uh, communicate better. Um, but it's something that many people will, will do spontaneously and naturally and isn't confined to a, a therapy room or a therapy session. Uh, th there are many different ways in which uh, reminiscence can be used uh, in a number of uh, nursing homes and care homes. Uh, reminiscence groups are run where a small group of people with dementia get together with a, one or two facilitators. And one of the things that sort of marks out uh, reminiscence as a therapy is the use of uh, triggers, memory triggers. Uh, things like uh, pictures, photographs, video clips, audio clips, um, tangible objects uh, from, from days gone by, things that set off the sequence of, of remembering so that the person doesn't have to dredge it up from, from their, their, their memories, but is actually prompted by what, what is in front of them. And that can be shared in a group uh, sort of context. Dr. Woods, if I, if I could, though, so the, the nature of dementia means that you... You have gaps in memory or you struggle to remember things. So, I mean, how how does it work uh, in a therapeutic setting for someone who who can't remember? That's right. So the the objects, the pictures, the, the music acts as a trigger and it gets into uh, the person's memory and helps them to uh, to to recall things that uh, they might not have been able to do spontaneously. Uh, we, we talk about uh, memories from, from the distant past as, as remote memory, and we know that uh, for all of us, um, remote memories from the first phase of our life are the ones that are actually best remembered. Family carers often say to us things like, you know, he, he doesn't remember what he had for breakfast, but he can tell me what happened when he was at school, you know, 70 year, years ago. Mm. Uh, in fact, scientific research suggests that um, that sort of memory it is impaired a bit in people with dementia, but it's so. But those memories are so well laid down and often so well rehearsed that they do provide a, a potential pool of memories that can be tapped into 
And the way memory works is that uh, often one memory will trigger another memory. And so the, 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 the tangible trigger or prompt gets you in at one point and that can then lead on to a whole sequence uh, uh, of memories. So is dementia the loss of memories or the inability to lay down new memories? Yeah, D dementia affects uh, a person's abilities in all sorts of ways, but characteristically early on in dementia, it's the ability to lay down new memories that's particularly impaired and uh, information that's well stored um, is likely to, to remain. Often the person with dementia has trouble re retrieving it. You know, it's a bit like, uh, you know, some of us have had in the past very busy offices, you know, with lots of filing cabinets. And we know we've got the information there somewhere, if only we could find it. And what reminiscence does is help you find that place in the filing cabinet where that information is kept and helps you to get the file out and have another look at it because you've been prompted to do that. And, and what has the benefit been shown to be for, um, let's, let's say it's a, it's a group reminiscence therapy set, uh, setting at a, at a nursing home, um, what does that do, the act of kind of recalling, you know, a holiday from your childhood or, you know, something that you did when you were a child at school? Yeah, so we, we've um, obviously carried out research ourselves, but we've also reviewed the worldwide literature on reminiscence in a variety of settings. And one of our clear findings is that in nursing homes, uh, reminiscence groups do seem to lead to uh, people with dementia enjoying a, a better quality of life. Um, and also uh, improved uh, ability in terms of uh, cognitive functions. By that, I mean uh, thinking and, and reasoning. The, the person's probably able to concentrate better, um, is able to uh, engage more with, with different sorts of materials. Is, um, it, is it actually slowing down the effects of the dementia? The, the calculations suggest that it's about six months of uh, slowing down, that, that you're seeing that the, that the person's improvement in ability is uh, equivalent to what they might have lost over a six-month period. Hmm. How much reminiscing do you have to do? Typically, that would, that would be eight or 12 weeks of uh, once a week or twice a week reminiscence sessions. Why would that work? Well, we think it works by um, tapping into to people's um, stored, uh, engaged processes by stimulating the brain. We know that other forms of uh, mental stimulation can really be helpful uh, for, for people with dementia. And, and also, you know, that uh, people's mood improves. And we know that uh, when people are more engaged, they're able to, to do better on uh, those sorts of memory tests and so on. Professor Woods, you mentioned that there also appears to be improved quality of life for people who do reminiscence therapy. What do you mean by that? What is? Yeah, well, that's the fundamental thing, really. I, that, uh, it, I think ju just improving a person's score on a memory test by one or two points isn't a big deal. But what really matters is how the, the person with dementia is experiencing life. So but by quality of life, we mean the person's feelings about their life, about how good it is, their, their sense of, of well-being, um, their, uh, their, their mood and so on, their, their sense of having good relationships with uh, people around them. And you know, there are now you know, a number of quality of life scales that can be used with people with dementia that show th these sorts of effects. And th this comes about you know, because the group has to be, for it to be effective, it has to be enjoyable. 
um, not everybody, I should say, you know, enjoys reminiscence. And, you know, these groups are for people who do enjoy it, which is probably the majority of people with dementia, but not, not everybody. And people perhaps who've had difficult uh, times in their life, who've had traumatic incidents, you know, perhaps reminiscence groups aren't for them. But for, for, for those for whom it is in, enjoyable and a pleasurable experience, in a group, you've also got this, the social interaction. And of course, those sorts of relationships and peer support are, are also very important for how we feel about life. So in reminiscence therapy, you focused on you, you focus on positive memories, then happy memories. That, that's an important part of making it effective for people. Yeah, I think in, in a group reminiscence session, um, clearly it's about the, the, the shared memories, the, the memories that uh, bring about good, good feelings. But sometimes, you know, they, they may be um, shared experiences of, of getting through tough times. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not uncommon in, in a reminiscence group for, for people to talk about, you know, some of the, the difficult times during wars or, or strikes or, or, or natural disasters or whatever. But it's about the, the way in which people get together through that. Um, one has to be very aware, you know, group leaders in reminiscence sessions have to be aware that there may be difficult memories for people, which may be upsetting. And uh, you always need to have somebody on hand, you know, to be able to, to work with a person who's become upset by, by some of uh, what's been discussed. But th that happens very rarely, but it's something that uh, group leaders do need to be aware of. And that's why they need some training and some support in, in running that sort of therapy. I'm speaking with Bob Woods, who is a leading researcher in reminiscence therapy and how it works with people who have dementia. Woods is a retired professor of psychology in the Aging and Dementia Research Center at Bangor University, which is in Wales. Professor Woods, would you describe a, a group setting that you've set in on or that you've um, facilitated, perhaps, a reminiscence therapy um, setting uh, group? Would you tell us sort of how it worked and, and what effect it, it, you know, what, what stands out to you about it? Sure. So typically a, a reminiscence group will have um, a theme for, for each session. And uh, in, in many reminiscence groups, you see some standard themes around uh, childhood, uh, growing up, holidays, school days, uh, courtship, you know, sort of uh, uh, getting together, relationships, work, you know, almost going through the, 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 the life experiences that people have had and just focusing on one aspect in, in each particular session. And so in a session on, on childhood, for instance, then the, the facilitator might make sure that they've got a, a number of pictures of the typical childhoods of the, the, the people who are going to be engaged in the group and perhaps some things, um, some games or toys um, fr fr from that period, which are passed around and people uh, share with each other their, their memories of, of a, a skipping rope or a football or a baseball, whatever it is that, uh, uh, that they've been able to get hold of. But those sort of tangible objects really begin to, to get people speaking. Can you recall a particular patient? Yes. Yeah, so so uh, somebody that uh, always comes to mind was from a, a session on uh, the, the jobs that people had. And uh, this guy was uh, an art teacher. And so for the, the session on, uh, on, on work, uh, his, uh, his wife arranged for him to have his, uh, his gown. Teachers uh, back in the day would often wear an academic gown um, for their teaching. And he ran an art class 
for, for the uh, the people uh, in in the, the the group and so everybody had paper and he encouraged them in, in drawing a face and, and then the the, the various uh, uh, offerings were then uh, put up in a, in a gallery on the wall and he provided a, a very sort of encouraging critique of uh, everybody's efforts in the group, including those of the, the facilitators. And as he did that, you could see him come to life again. You know, he was no longer, you know, just a man with dementia living in a, you know, you know being, receiving care. He was somebody who was alive. He, he was back at being an art teacher again, encouraging people, bringing people on, uh, being able to engage with, with art. And, and that was really, really exciting uh, to see. And his wife happened to, was able to be in the session with him. And uh, she was just amazed how, how he came to life in that way. But he wasn't, was he disoriented, though, in thinking that, that he was actually back then teaching children as opposed to sort of reminiscing and teaching peers no no he 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 knew that this was a a game in a sense you know that he was uh, doing a, a role play um he was playing the part but uh, he mm. was able then to to lose himself in that and so is there i wondered if there there's a concern that reminiscence therapy you know family members and caregivers might um might sometimes say you know she's She's stuck in the past or she thinks she's 13 um, and that can be quite troubling and, and you wonder if that's healthy for that individual with dementia. Does reminiscence therapy risk sort of catching people, uh, kind of trapping them in that disorientation when what you really want is for them to recognize, you know, to kind of be recognize their current moment, the present? Yeah, no. I think that uh, you know years ago, re- reminiscence was seen as a as a bad thing. That it was uh, something old people did a lot of and was really uh, not a good thing. And then I think we discovered that uh, actually those stories from people's past are actually fascinating and interesting and something to be valued and to be held on to. Um, in our experience, uh, reminiscence works um, by starting a conversation and providing a place where you can actually engage with, with the person living with dementia and you know, actually have a, a, a meaningful conversation with, with them. Now, the, the other type of reminiscence we've not talked about yet, I think addresses that perhaps even better. And, and that's developing a life story book on an individual basis with the person with dementia. And we've done this now with, with a large number of people. And we also have digital life story books, you know, so it's not all just on, on, on paper. And what this does is to take the person chronologically through their life. And so it actually provides them with something where they can actually see, you know, this is my childhood, this is uh, where I went to school, this is where I grew up, this is uh, where I went on to, to live, this is the job that I did. And in, in taking the person chronologically through that, you can begin to address that issue that, that you raise of the, the danger of people perhaps li- living in the past. And we found that uh, there were some people that we worked with where some of the, uh, the past was quite unhappy for them. Um, and some of the early days were quite unhappy and working in this way helps them to begin to see their life in more of a context and to bring them back perhaps to some happier times in, in their life that, that uh, happened after that, rather than getting stuck in some very uh, difficult memories from, from early days. Is there a way for a family member or a caregiver who's not trained in reminiscence therapy to help their loved one reminisce in a way that might bring some benefits? 
Sure. So I would, I would uh, encourage any family caregiver um, with a person with dementia to begin to make a life storybook with, with as, as much as possible with the person so that the person has some control o- over what go- goes, goes into it. So it's a scra- um, is it a scrapbook the, or a photo album, effectively? You can use a photo album, you can do it on a, a smart device, you know, you can do it in a, in a number of ways. And on the internet, you can download different templates and there are different uh, digital life story options that are available and where you can upload photos and video clips, add text. You can have the person with dementia narrating uh, their story so that it's then something that you can then watch together. And one of the benefits of that we found is that, uh, so the family caregiver uh, makes the life storybook with the person with dementia. And then suppose that another carer or another family member comes in, it actually is then something that the person with dementia can share with the new caregiver and uh, it helps the the person perhaps who doesn't know them so well to very quickly get to know them as a person not again not just somebody uh, with, with dementia but a real living person who's lived a life who's had a lot of experiences and has got a lot of interesting stories to tell what is your favorite question to ask as a as a starting point for um for a person who has dementia mm. Well, I, I tell you the thing never to ask, which is, do you remember? <laughs> that, uh, and often when we're wanting to do reminiscence, we sort of fall into the, the trap and say, oh, do you remember this? Do you remember that? You know, that then puts the person with dementia on, on the back foot. Mm. It exposes what the person can't do. Mm. <laughs> um, and what we want to do is to bring to the front the things the person with dementia is still perfectly capable of doing. So much better, you know, to, it's about uh, have a look at this photo. <laughs> Does, you know, um, but what do you see there? You know, um, it looks like it's uh, pe- people on, on holiday. You know, where was your favorite place for, for going on holiday? Where, where would you, uh, if I wanted to go on holiday, where, where would you suggest I go? You know, and drawing on, on them rather than, you know, forcing them into, uh, you know, trying to do, to, to recall something. Mm. And often memories come back uh, incidentally uh, rather than deliberately. Interesting. Oh, it, it, you actually didn't use the word remember or memory at all as you were modeling that. So you're kind of avoiding those maybe upsetting trigger words and just, um, you know, asking about periods of yeah, time. Let's, let's just talk. Yeah. <laughs> Bob Woods is an expert in aging and dementia research. He's an emeritus professor of psychology at Bangor University in Wales. Dr. Woods, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. And as I say, there are a number of internet resources that are available if people want to follow up any of the, the suggestions. We'll put some links on our website, byuradio.org slash top of mind. I'm Julie Rose. Coming up next on this special holiday episode of the show, and speaking of stories around the holidays, we'll find out why spooky stories of ghosts and supernatural phenomena were once very common around Christmas time. Then, a tribute to Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Roll your eyes if you must, but it is the only new song in decades to work its way onto the list of classic Christmas pop songs. It's right up there with White Christmas and Let It Snow. How did that happen? It's the happiest season of This is Top of Mind. It's great to have you with us for this special holiday episode. I'm Julie Rose, 
And it is great to have Andy Williams reminding us of all the things that make the season bright. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of Wait, scary ghost stories? What do they have to do with Christmas? Well, nothing these days, but in Victorian England, ghosts were all over the holiday. The encounters Ebenezer Scrooge had with three ghosts on Christmas Eve did not appear out of thin air, so to speak. They were part of an established genre. The connection is mostly because of the winter solstice, which is on December 22nd. Okay. And a lot of ancient traditions um, heralded the end of the solar year um, the night before and then the beginning of the solar, solar year. And in between was the time when spirits could come back to Earth. This is Brigham Young University English professor Leslie Thorne Murphy. So the Romans, when they invaded um, Great Britain, they brought with them uh, pagan traditions that featured a kind of revelry night during this uh, time when the solstice happened. And ghost stories were the name of the game. That sounds a little like All Hallows' Eve, something more Halloween-y. This was a Christmas thing, though, that was going on? Or it wasn't? I mean, the thing was that it was the solstice. It was the death of light, right, into darkness. And there's this in-between time where spooky things happen. And then Christmas just sort of happened to get overlaid on top of that later on in Christianity. So... Yes, well, when uh, the Christians came to England and started to convert the people, it was a natural thing for them to take times of celebration that were important to the native peoples and um, make a a Christian overlay, as you Mm -hmm. say, go along with them. And to be perfectly honest, the Christmas story is a supernatural story. It's a story about a god being born to a mortal woman. And so I don't think that the stretch is quite as much of a stretch as we tend to think of it with our current ideas of Christmas. Hmm. Okay, but... Supernatural is not the same as ghost stories and hauntings in my book. So uh, what kinds of ghost stories were the uh, in vogue in, in Victorian England when this sort of Christmas spookiness was at its height? Yes. Well, to tell you that, let me give you just a little bit of a background. So it's the middle of the winter. It's the darkest night of the year. People gather around the Yule log and they entertain one another. And in medieval times, this often took the place of gathering at um, the baronial hall where the community would come together. So families um, and all the members of the community um, were welcome to come in, have a great feast, and then they would entertain each other while this huge Yule log would burn for days. Well, one of the ways they would entertain each other was with um, ghost stories. Mm. Now, by the time we get to the Victorian period, we've had a, a time just preceding this when print became much more inexpensive and accessible. People mm. started to learn to read a lot more, and so you get ghost stories in print that are associated with Christmas. By the Victorian period, these were a, a major part of the, um, the print world. Um, if you were going to buy a gift that was a book for someone at Christmas time, chances are it may well have been a collection of ghost stories. Really? 
That is so weird. <laughs> um, so s- magazines as well, like serial collections you'd find in the local newspaper or the monthly magazine, you would see uh, ghost stories would come out intended to be part of. People would get up and do these ghost story sharings at these community exactly. gatherings. Exactly. So there's a tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas time. And then when the gift giving um, and more mercantile parts of Christmas start coming to the fore by the 19th century, then we've got... Um, these gift books that needed to be uh, full of stories and ghost stories lent themselves to the length. A good, you know, a ghost story that you're going to tell someone around the fire might be a few minutes long. Hmm. And that's the perfect length to go into, say, a periodical that's going to have a whole bunch of different articles and things. At Christmas time, they would put out a special issue often of these periodicals. Hmm. And lo and behold, ghost stories were a prime candidate for inclusion. Okay, so can you give us an example of what a popular ghost story? I mean, we're thinking of Charles Dickens, and that one's actually based around Christmas. It's the night before Christmas, and there's Scrooge, and it's all about the morality of, you know, caring for others and so forth. But I mean, was that the basic concept with these stories that in the end it all turned out happily? (laughs) To be perfectly honest, no. That was really Dickens' innovation. And I must say, contrary to um, uh, some opinions about Dickens, he really did not invent Christmas. It preceded him by a long time. (laughs) He didn't even invent the family celebration of Christmas. But what he did do was emphasize those things and his real innovation was giving a ghost story a moral ending and Hmm. making it come together with the more Christian or at least more moral message of Christmas. Okay. Um, So it wasn't then the the typical ghost story would be, here's this bad person who gets visited by these ghosts slash fairy godmothers who who in the end has a change of heart and Merry Christmas to one and all. Oh, let me give you an example. Okay. All right. This came out um, in 1850. About a decade after A Christmas Carol. It's a story by Elizabeth Gaskell and it's called The Old Nurse's Story. And this actually was in a periodical that was published by Dickens at Christmas time. Um, it is a truly creepy story. Um, it begins with a young girl who has just been orphaned and is being taken by her faithful servant to an old baronial hall. Um, it is spooky. It is dark. And it's inhabited by two elderly maiden aunts. Um, actually, one maiden aunt. Um, another is deceased, I should say. Um, and the the ghost story happens as soon as they start spending spending the night at um, this new, uh, their new home. Now, normally I would never tell you the end of the story, but this time I want to tell you the end. Yeah, we need to and then it. everybody really needs to go read the middle because that's when the real action happens. Okay. Okay. This is the moral of the tale in the place of uh, Dickens' um, having a very sweet moral about uh, a person who has changed his life entirely. Gaskell has this moral. Alas, alas, what is done in youth can never be undone in age. What is done in youth can never be undone in age. Now, what leads the people in this story to actually conclude this is really the genius of the story. It's a great ghost tale. So there is a ghost. The place is haunted. And then at the end, it's regret. This like, exactly. <laughs> this regretful moment. That's funny. Yes. Uh, it's a superb story. 
Let me give you one more example okay, that okay. actually is a, a humorous story. So this is called Told After Supper. It's by Jerome K. Jerome. It's from the beginning of the 1890s. And it begins by um, declaring that it's Christmas Eve. And he goes on to say it is always Christmas Eve in a ghost story. Christmas Eve is the ghost's great gala night. On Christmas Eve, they hold their annual fete. On Christmas Eve, nobody in Ghostland who is anybody, or rather, speaking of ghosts, one should say every nobody who is any nobody comes out to show himself or her, herself to see and to be seen, to promenade about and display their winding sheets and grave clothes to each other. Hmm. And he goes on to tell a superbly tongue-in-cheek story about typical ghost stories and ultimately, to be honest, about why the narrator is caught walking around town without his pants on. <laughs> it's a great story. Well worth a read. Sometimes they'd be humorous. Sometimes they'd just be straight up um, creepy and sad. It's sounds like. Um, rarely would they have the Christian morals in, in embedded in them like Charles Dickens would put into Ebenezer Scrooge's story. Um, was this something like for kids too or is this what the adults would do around the Yule log when the kids went to bed because, you know, you don't want to traumatize the poor little ones? Great question. This is actually for the kids as well as everyone else. In fact, the typical (laughs) illustration in one of these stories would be um, a family um, gathered around a big old fireplace in a stone hall in the middle of the ancestral manor house. And there would be all the children sitting around the fire with uh, their attention focused on their grandmother or the elderly aunt or someone who was telling them about their ancestor who still walked the halls of this very home every Christmas Eve. That's terrible. That sounds like the kind of thing that a parent would do to keep their kid in their room so that they could be, so they wouldn't catch Santa Claus doing his Christmas magic. There we go. We've got a modern day <laughs> rationale. I mean, speaking of modern day, do British families still do the ghost story thing? How did this fall out of favor? Yeah, that's another very good question. So the Victorian period seems to have seen the high point of the ghost story um, on Christmas Eve in print. Um, But the tradition is certainly more familiar um, in England than it is here in the U.S. Did it ever catch on in the U.S. during the late 1800s when it was such a big deal in Victorian England? Not particularly. We borrowed from other traditions more than from this one in particular. And really, I think it's because... um, we started uh, celebrating Halloween hmm. in a way that overlaps with this particular aspect of Christmas celebrations in Great Britain. Um, so, so you're saying we we didn't ghost need stories. ghost stories at Christmas because we thought, oh, let's do those on Halloween. They simply became more associated with Halloween here. Huh. And that came from, um, as far as I can tell in the, the folklore that I've written, uh, read, um, from Irish re- um, immigrants who brought over traditions of celebrating All Hallows' Eve by carving turnips, which became pumpkins in hmm. the New World, and having that um, resonate at a time as a time when spirits would walk the earth. So if people want to try the spooky Christmas, uh, the, the Victorian style... <laughs> What are the names of those stories again for people to go check out? Yes, certainly. Um, The Old Nurse's Story by Elizabeth Gaskell, Told After Supper by Jerome K. Jerome. And I would also add a very short poem called A Christmas Ghost Story by Thomas Hardy, which happens to be the most powerful ghost story I have ever read. Leslie Thorne Murphy is a professor of English and Victorian literature at Brigham Young University. 
I'm Julie Rose. Next on this special holiday episode of Top of Mind, why Mariah Carey's enduring hit, All I Want for Christmas Is You, deserves to be among the most popular holiday songs of all time. We'll be right back. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. A bar in Texas this holiday season had the audacity to ban Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You from playing on its jukebox before December 1st and then restrict it to just one spin a night. The bar manager said it just gets overplayed. And we do hear it a lot this time of year. It routinely hits number one on Billboard's Hot 100 chart decades after it first came out in 1994. And it is the only song to enter the classic Christmas canon in all those years. It's right in there now with White Christmas and Let It Snow. I spoke about how that happened with musicologist Nate Sloan, who co-hosts the Vox podcast Switched on Pop. Well, I would like to begin by acknowledging that Mariah Carey gets full credit here. She wrote this song. She had a co-writer. But I, naively, I suppose, had always assumed that she was a pop singer who sang other people's songs. And she actually wrote this song. Yeah, she wrote it uh, along with her her co-author, Walter Afanasiev. Uh, According to them, in about 15 minutes, they came up with the majority of the songs, music and lyrics with a little fine tuning after that. But most of it just came together in 15 minutes. You know, I think like some of the great songs of all time, that's all you need to write a to write a hit. I guess um, if you've got the right brilliance and a little bit of magic <laughs> dust and some sleigh bells, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, um, and I think but it's you know, I think your your reaction um, reflects the way that Mariah Carey and and frankly, a lot of female pop artists are are viewed in in popular culture that they're kind of um, maybe ciphers for for other people behind the scenes. But mm. uh, I think when we celebrate this song, we're also celebrating Mariah Carey and by extension, all her female peers in the music industry and trying to give them their their due. So, yeah, she is the architect of this Christmas classic. The first time you heard it, did it register as a new Christmas classic to you? No, the first time I heard this, um, you know, growing up as a Jewish kid in New York City, uh, <laughs> I didn't really relate to the song very much at all. And if anything, I think I found it kind of annoying every time <laughs> it came on because it comes on a lot. Uh, so I, I had a, a gradual sort of acceptance uh, of the, the the brilliance of this song. Um, and part of that probably had to do with meeting my now wife and celebra- actually celebrating Christmas for the first time. And I thought, oh, now, now I understand why people uh, are, are, are so obsessed with this holiday. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's not just the sentiment of the song. You know, I think what, what I've come to realize is, is so brilliant about it is the, the, the actual structure of it, the way, the way it's put together is really effective. You know, in the very beginning of the song, Mariah Carey really hooks you in. There's this suspense that they generate in the intro. Uh, the, the, the first thing you hear are these kind of chords that are held. And over that, Mariah Carey starts to sing. 
uh, we don't really get a, a beat until the end of, uh, of this intro, until the first verse. So there's this a lot of tension building up and she's telling us uh, what she doesn't want for Christmas. Right. So and lyrically, so kind of... lyrically building suspense. Let's listen. People can listen oh. for the suspense. I don't want a lot for Christmas. The excellent and highly suspenseful introduction to All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, talking about it with Nate Sloan, who is a musicologist at USC, co-host of Switched on Pop, the podcast. All right. So talk to me about the suspense. Uh, You know, until you mentioned it, I had never really noticed how she's toying with us there. Like, oh, I don't want Mm. this and I don't want that. And at that moment where she finally says, All I Want for Christmas is You, you know, that's the first time, that's that's a really crucial harmonic moment in the song. It's the first time we get uh, what's called a tonic chord. So it's like the, the home chord of the song. Mm. So I think, you know, when we're listening to that intro, we're hearing the, the, the chimes and all this like lush Christmas orientation. We're hearing Mariah Carey's virtuosic vocals. You know, she's like, she's like an opera singer almost in, in the kind of notes and, and her unbelievable range. But then there's also this subtle thing at work where we're being we're hearing the suspense of this chord progression that isn't resolving until that final word you and then all of a sudden the drums come in the sleigh bells come in this boogie woogie piano comes in and it's like we've just been taken for a ride and the song has barely even started yeah it's pretty great okay so if you were to change the lyrics completely though like what if she was singing about eating popcorn at the movies you know, mm. would you know, it still, have would it still be a Christmas drama? song? Yeah. Well, OK. Would it have? I mean, let's I guess I'm mostly just interested in whether or not the lyrics are a crucial reason why this is a Christmas song or if there's anything else about it that makes it sort of iconically Christmas. Yeah, there's it's a great question. You know, there's there's another one of these kind of subtle structural features, I think, that you know, connects us to uh, the songs that we associate with Christmas, which are songs from uh, an an earlier era, songs from the 1940s and the 1950s, songs like that you mentioned at the top of the show, White Christmas, Let It Snow. Mm. And and what those songs all have in common is um, a kind of uh, form that's pretty unusual today. It it really belongs much more to that time of the 30s and 40s and 50s. and so what Mariah Carey is doing with All I Want for Christmas is she's actually reusing that form. It's called the A-A-B-A song form, which is different from the verse chorus song form that most songs use today. Okay. So she's get, putting us in that Christmas spirit by using the song structure that's really 
borrowed from an earlier generation. So whether we're aware of it or not, we're kind of primed to hear this as a Christmas song. Let's break that down a little bit, um, the the AABA idea. So first of all, a typical Papa Rock song would be verse and chorus, which I think a lot of us are familiar with. So they start in and they sing the, the thing and then they've got the hooky chorus and then we have verse two and then the chorus, right? Back and forth, back and forth. But AABA doesn't have a chorus or how, how, how is AABA different? Yeah, AAB is, AABA is different in that there's not a full chorus section. There's, there's something that we might call a refrain. Okay. And in this case, as in many songs um, of this style, the refrain is the, the title lyric. All I want for Christmas is you. So if we just look at kind of zoom out of, over the whole structure, we have this A section that starts with, I don't, want a lot, I don't want a lot for Christmas and ends with, all I want for Christmas is you. Mm-hmm. And we have another A section that starts with, I won't ask for much this Christmas and ends with, all I want for Christmas is you. And then we get this B section, this contrasting section, and that's where she sings, all the lights are shining so brightly everywhere. We kind of move to this more minor key. It's a really great contrasting section that brings us back to the final A section, which starts, I don't want a lot for Christmas and ends, all I want for Christmas is you. Mm. And this is the same model that is used in songs like Winter Wonderland, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, Let It Snow. Um, so I, again, I think whether we're like, you know, we're not necessarily listening to my Mariah Carey and singing, oh, wow, her, her anachronistic use of the AABA form is very effective in creating Christmas cheer, but you know, it's, it's there whether we know it or not. Yeah. Let's listen to the B section. So you described, we've already heard, I'm sure it's stuck in people's heads right now. You know, I don't want a lot for Christmas. All I want for Christmas (laughs) is you. Right. So we get that one, we get it a second time. We actually almost get it three times because we have the intro and then we get it one and then we get it two. And then, and then there's the B section, the, the, um, the, the contrasting section. And I actually have that. Let's listen to a bit. Great. All right. So here it comes, the contrasting part. All right. And then it goes back to I don't want a lot for Christmas again. And we round off the song with a lot of energy. So, Nate Sloan, this was a standard structure, A-A-B-A, this refrain and bridge thing was standard for pop songs in general or specific to this kind of nostalgic Christmas classic type song? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, it, it, it was common in songs in general during the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, and I think the, the fact is that this is really the one time of year when we listen to music from, from that generation. Mm. Um, you know, it's the one time of year when a song like White Christmas from 1942 will suddenly be in the top 10 on the Billboard charts. That just doesn't happen uh, any other time of year except December. So this is, uh, when, when we're listening to these older Christmas songs around this time of year, we're kind of digging back into this early, earlier era of pop songwriting as well, before the verse-chorus form kind of started to dominate pop music in the 1960s, thanks to people like 
Bob Dylan and the Beatles and, mm. uh, and, and other songwriters of that era. Um, so yeah, it's, it's this rare moment in pop music that as a music historian, I really love because it's this time when we're all listening to this music from 80 years ago that, that otherwise isn't really in our collective consciousness. So I think it's this really fun kind of trip through musical history that we get to take every December. And part of, you think, the genius of this particular composition by Mariah Carey, one of the reasons why it has entered our Christmas um, you know, classic canon is because it feels nostalgic enough to belong there aside white Christmas. Yeah, because certainly, you know, there's no shortage of Christmas albums with, with, new, with new Christmas songs that are released by artists every year. And yet none of those have really penetrated our sort of collective Christmas canon in any, in any sizable way. Um, so perhaps this is the kind of secret to Mariah Carey's success is that she's reaching backwards to these more nostalgic musical forms. Um, Had to have been an intentional choice, you think? And it, I, you know, it's hard to say if it's intentional or perhaps just intuitive. Hmm. Um, but but either way, I think it's really effective. Yeah. Okay, so Nate Sloan, um, we've talked about the suspense of the lyrics and the music, especially in that introductory section. Um, and then we talk about the song structure itself. There's one other component that you highlighted in the really fun Switched on Pop podcast you did about this song a while back. Um, and that is another S word. It's the sleigh bells. Absolutely. <laughs> Just so people, yeah. people realize these sleigh bells do not let up. Once she hits the stride after that introduction, it is like they're there. The whole way through let's have a quick listen i mean they're there on every single beat it's not like they're just a little touch of sleigh bell <laughs> it's they are a thick layer of frosting what is the effect do you think of sleigh bells in christmas music yeah, you know, it's this very, it's a very seasonal instrument. It's not something with, with, and I should say with, with a few exceptions because um, listeners of our podcast, Switched on Pop, had a, had a really fun time last year um, coming up with songs that aren't Christmas songs that feature sleigh bells. And there are a few of them, including the Beach Boys have, have one. Mm. Uh, but generally, you know, this isn't a, a sound that you hear any other time of year except Christmas. It's like, uh, you could almost argue there's a sort of Pavlovian response to hearing sleigh bells. You hear a sleigh bell and you immediately think Christmas, you immediately think December, you immediately think jingle bells. So it's, it's, it's a, a sort of secret weapon that the song gets to use because it's such a unique sonic texture that you just don't hear otherwise. And it kind of has this uh, immediate sensation that I think we get from listening to it that puts us in this kind of holiday state of mind. Yeah. You know, it's funny with this song, uh, All I Want for Christmas is You, once you're listening for the sleigh bell, you realize that they, that there's a lot of sleigh bell. And I almost wonder if they thought at some point, is this too much sleigh? Do you think there is such a thing as too much sleigh, sleigh bell in a Christmas song like this? I, you know, in, in, the, in the case of this particular one, I don't think there can be too much sleigh bell. It's <laughs> what gives it its kind of propulsive drive. And actually, now that we're talking about it, I'm, I'm, this, this is how kind of rich this song is. You realize there's even more going on. It's written in this time signature 6-8, eight, 
one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. Mm. And we have the, the sleigh bells just kind of chugging along, chick, 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 chick. So it gives it this really propulsive feeling that uh, I think just kind of grabs you from beginning to end and it doesn't let up, which is really effective if you're trying to have a Christmas song that's gonna be playing in every store and on everyone's radio and everyone's house. That's, that's a really uh, effective technique for kind of grabbing a listener's attention is just not, not ever giving it a pause. Do you think that we're ripe for another Christmas classic at some point? I, I have to imagine that, uh, I mean, it's been 26 years now since mm-hmm. Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You uh, has been the most recent entree into the great Christmas songbook. So it seems like we're due for a new contribution. And to any budding musicians, songwriters listening to this, uh, I, I think my takeaway, uh, if I was in, if I was going to recommend uh, a playbook for for capturing the public's Christmas musical imagination, I would say look to this song. You know, reach back towards these uh, older, more nostalgic song forms. Try and introduce a little suspense. Have a contrasting section in a minor key that uh, that that gives you that kind of adds to the drama of the song, and of course find somewhere to put some sleigh bells in there. The more, the merrier. <laughs> you know, this, um, the, 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 the sign for me that a Christmas classic has um, really crossed the threshold is that it's also getting covered by everybody under the sun on their Christmas albums, right? Why do you think we haven't started seeing a lot of people covering All I Want for Christmas is You? It's a, that's a really great question. And I, I have to think that it's because uh, the original recording is is so associated with Mariah Carey's iconic vocals. Mm. So now there's probably two reasons for that. One is that we are we unlike you know certain other singers like White Christmas, for instance, which we've been talking about. That's not a I wouldn't call it a virtuosic performance by say Bing Crosby. Um, but with Mariah Carey, it's really part of the joy of listening to it is, is hearing her pull off these technical feats of, of singing, uh, the runs, the cadenzas, the impossibly high notes. So that's just something that we continually enjoy to listen to. And secondly, it's something that's really hard to imitate. Hmm. You know, if, if you come along, if you're, if you're a budding pop star and you want to release a version of this, that's got to be pretty intimidating to try and match Mariah Carey's vocal pyrotechnics. So I I imagine a lot of artists consider it and then think, you know what, I'm just going to stick with White Christmas because it's a little less intimidating than this vocal masterclass. Although if you're going to do a cover, I mean, ain't no reason like a heavy metal band couldn't cover All I Want for (laughs) Christmas is You, right? Or like a country version. It wouldn't have to be this like poppy, you know, all over the map Mariah Carey virtuosity. You could, I mean, I I guess I would be really interested to see someone do a very unexpected cover. What would be Mm. that genre for you? Um, It's a a really good point. You know, I, it actually makes me think about one of the moments when I uh, started to really love this song was performing it in a, a, a holiday charity concert in, in Brooklyn, organized by my friend Dave Harrington. Uh, we did an arrangement with uh, this, this fantastic singer, Todd Goldstein, where we slowed the song way down. We kind of turned it into almost a, a sexy slow jam. Hmm. Uh, 
uh, and we stripped away all the instrumentation. And it, I, I was just amazed at how kind of luscious and almost seductive the song became. So yeah. I think that's a really, uh, it's a really good point. You know, there, there are maybe covers of the song that are in, existing in other genres that are just waiting to happen. Nate Sloan co-hosts the podcast Switched on Pop from Vox Media, and he's a professor of musicology at the University of Southern California. And that's it for this special Christmas episode of Top of Mind. It's been great having you with us. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Listen to more Top of Mind episodes on the free BYU Radio app. I'm Julie Rose. Merry Christmas, and we'll talk soon.